All right, uh, let's begin. Uh, we are um, under our deadline to be out of here by 5 o'clock. So um, I'm Chip Rossetti, the managing editor of Library of Arabic Literature. Uh, and this is our final session this afternoon on uh, LAL's contributions to cultural diplomacy, diffusion, literary exchanges, and education. Um, so in many ways, um, cultural diplomacy is uh, very much at the heart of LAL's mission. And I think at the uh, heart of the, um, uh, the central idea behind the uh, NYU Abu Dhabi Institute, our supporters, our, our backers, um, and has been sort of the central to our mission from the beginning. Um, so in one level, we're a bit premature. We've, uh, we have 15 books out uh, the last three years. We're still fairly new. Um, so in some sense, we're sort of um, looking ahead to sort of what might be the um, what might be the effect of uh, our books within 10 years from now, five, 10 years from now, what, uh, how this will affect what we think of as world literature, uh, sort of world republic of letters, um, where Arabic literature uh, fits into that. Um, I was just thinking recently of uh, the recent um, interview that appears on the, um, our website, uh, www.libraryofarabicliterature.org. Uh, given by Marina herself, um, in which she spoke about dissolving the barriers of literature. And she mentioned specifically how European literature in recent uh, years has sort of expanded to sort of encompass or embrace Latin American literature. And at some point, will other literary traditions come to see Arabic literature in that sort of widen themselves, in other words, to embrace uh, Arabic literature as something more kindred rather than other? Um, that's something we might sort of speculate on. But I will... Um, Sit down at this point and just turn it over to our first panelist, uh, Mohammed Salamri. Uh, well, um, thank you very much. I'm um, very grateful to see in one place uh, these many of my teachers and colleagues and brought together by a non Arabist, which is an amazing feat. Maybe that's the only way we can get together. <laughs> <laughs> um, since I'm not introduced in the biography, I actually will introduce myself by talking in which about the ways in which I think I am a multiple um, implied reader for this kind of project. So one of them as a native speaker. It, uh, uh, Joseph raised it earlier, and I think it's very important. One of it is that, of course, a lot of these texts are no longer available, in fact. Um, so, the, uh, so they're no longer available in this particular format, edited, um, combed, combed through and compiled through, through manuscripts and so on. So that's amazingly useful to me. And I think it would be very useful for people in the Arab world to actually have. So for example, this version of a Shidiyat, for example, in its entirety, I think is absolutely very much needed. As a bilingual, um, obviously, um, someone also talked about this when, when, I, when I read this, and I like its display, actually, the way it is. Um, when I'm stuck on a word, I don't have to struggle in order to actually find it. I just look at the other page, and it's right there. Someone else has done the job for me. Uh, as, a, as an academic, obviously, this is my field of work, and this, I think, is an invaluable source for me and my students, particularly in Oxford, where uh, we heavily go back to the original texts and work, uh, work from and hope our students carry on that tradition. But also as, an, as, as a, a, a specialist of Arabic literature, I'm a specialist of modern and uh, a little bit of uh, pre-modern Arabic li literature where I started. So this is kind of a, a, a proper bridge for me that allows me to complete the two. And I'm very glad a lot of 19th century 
and early 20th century is taking uh, place there. So if you like, if you like, uh, uh, I look at this. I mean, obviously, work with translation all the time. And I, my first suggestion uh, is finding a way of compiling and making visible the amazing work that has been in debate about translation that between practitioners and academics within LAL to have it somewhere available for everybody to see. And I think that itself is a, is a, is a corpus for a lot of research, and I, and I, and I advise it. Now, uh, I was very intrigued by one of the books, and I'm going to comment only on one of them, which is the book about Ali ibn Abi Talib. The author, the translator, is not with us, unfortunately. And one of the reasons I'm choosing it, because my other colleagues are, are, are talking about Malazi, which is, in a sense, uh, a more narrative book and probably more appealing to readers. But the question of Ali is a bit, is a bit tricky, and I, I kind of echoed a little bit. Uh, this echoed a little bit in me. For me, uh, as a student in Tunisian high schools, uh, some of the Ali speeches is the kind of thing I grew up learning. And it raised, and when I learned them, they come within a particular learning context. Some of them you learn, you memorize. Some of them you sit down and actually study in depth. Um, so uh, they come with, uh, I didn't look at the aphorisms, but mostly we looked at his speeches. And they come with this kind of something act, uh, more than the text, which is really some emotional charge, if you like, some memorization. So I sit there and I immediately think of, well, how I'm very curious to see what someone would do with a speech. And this is not addressed to you, but ya ashbah rijali wa la rijali. Aqula atfalin wa kuluma rabbat al hijal. Wadatu wallahi anni lam a'rifkum. In jittukum fil harri wa kultu uhzuhum qabla an yuhzukum. Kultu amhilna hatta in salikhan al harri. إن جئت في القرية وقلت أغزوهم قبل أن يغزوكم قلتم أمهلنا حتى ينسلخ عن القر فإن كنتم من الحر والقر تفرون فأنتم والله من السيف أفر Maybe I'll turn this to Humphrey to translate <laughs> So this hearing in which he says basically uh, you say you fear the heat and the cold but you really fear most is the sword This is the Ali that I have in mind when I looked uh, at, at uh, Qutbuddin's book, it deals with some other things. It deals with aphorisms, maxims, Q&A, various forms uh, or supplications, uh, short speeches. There is only one echo of Ali, the commander of the faithful in the literal sense who harangues and arouses his troops. And that, uh, I think, in terms of comparative literature, has uh, a tremendous room, as you know. So, uh, uh, so what Qutbuddin reveals is, is Ali the, the speaker or the producer of speeches that she calls, that she works with, uh, she calls the easy yet not possible, which is her translation of the Sahl al-Mumtana, one problem of translation that she handles. So how to convey that? So uh, for a translator who has to make one choice, of course, uh, and like a commentator, she says, you have to make that one choice, so how do you deal with these kinds of meanings? And she opted for this sentence by sentence, which I think worked wonderfully. Now, in terms of genre, to pick up the discussion earlier, so we have maxims, 
sayings and aphorisms that are common across languages. Uh, Ali's aphorisms, I think, should travel very well. Uh, and I, in fact, another suggestion to the group is why not have the aphorisms themselves published in small little uh, 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 separate ways, either electronically or in other, in other form. Shorter, they're short, pithy, to the point. They're memorable and written to be memorized, if you like, or memory in mind. Some also other question answers, which also is a literary genre that is well known, uh, and I think, I think that uh, uh, also uh, can, can travel and be studied across particular contexts in world literature. Uh, then there is, of course, uh, uh, what I'm trying to say, there's plenty for comparatists uh, with this to do with this bilingual edition, particularly because it focused on these uh, other genres. Uh, for example, well, the question of Hekma, um, whether it's said in the Sufi sayings, let's say, of the Nifari, for example. Or for me, um, in my own work, I like to use epigraphs all the time, and I don't make a difference whether it's said by Siran or say, said by, by a Nifari. They sometimes say exactly the, 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 the same thing if you wanted to capture, or even by Nietzsche or whatever. So there, there is a, a whole field, field there that, that uh, I don't want to expand on here, but uh, it raises the same point. So what I chose for you is, is a, a, a small extract but I chose it really in order to perhaps uh, do a different kind of diplomacy, is to make you all academics who are presented as modern day ulama feel good about yourselves. Um, that is something that perhaps uh, we could, uh, in praise of respect of Omar al-Ulama, that, that uh, we could perhaps add to our university charter or pin on our doors for our disrespectful sometimes students to come and look at, and you'll see why. So more seriously, I chose this. Um, as an expression of the culture of learning, um, as a culture in which Ali's Ali uh, ranks learning above all other practices of piety and service to Islam, and he ranks ulama above all others. So I'll read it in, uh, in Arabic first, and then uh, in English. Um, in Arabic, then. وقال علي عليه الصلاة والسلام في حق العالم من حق العالم أن لا تكثر عليه السؤال. ولا تعده في الجواب ولا تلح عليه إذا كسل ولا تأخذ بثوبه إذا نهض ولا تفشي له سرا ولا تغتاب عنده أحدا وأن تجلس أمامه إذا أتيته قصدته بالتحية وسلمت على القوم عامة يعني القوم بعد ذلك وأن تحفظ سره ومغيبه ما حفظ أمر الله عز وجل فإنما العالم بمنزلة النخلة تنتظر متى يسقط عليك متى يسقط عليك منها شيء والعالم أفضل من الصائم القائم الغازي في سبيل الله وإذا مات العالم إن ثلم بموته في الإسلام ثلمة لا تسد إلى يوم القيامة وإذا مات العالم شيعه سبعة وسبعون ألفا من من مقربي السماء now, just for English, to, so we know what we, the Arabs were laughing about. Um, Ali said about the rights of the learned man, you owe it to a learned man that you not bombard him with questions, dog him for answers, press him when he is tired, hold him back by his robe when he rises, expose his secrets, nor tell him tales about people. Moreover, you should sit facing him and greet him individually when you come to his class before addressing others present collectively. You should preserve his secrets and defend him in his absence. Abide by this 
as long as he preserves God's commandments. A nerd man is like a, a, a date pile. You can expect the date to drop on you at any moment. <laughs> a nerd man is worthier than one who fasts, prays, and fights in the path of God. When a nerd man dies, Islam sustains a breach not plugged till the day of the resurrection. When a learned man dies, his beer is escorted by 77,000 of God's cherished animals. And I, uh, not bad, huh? <laughs> so, and I close by another one of the same, more or less, elk. Uh, and it's uh, a, a, a shorter, uh, more of, more within the book, the, the question of aphorisms and maxims. Nisanul aqili wara'a qalbihi. Qalb al-ahmaqi wara'a lisanihi. An intelligent man's tongue is located behind his heart. A fool's heart is located behind his tongue. <laughs> I'll be one of those. And stop. I'm Sean Anthony of the University of Oregon. I'm the translator of the Expeditions by Mahmoud ibn Rashid. It's a very early work. I, I dare say it's probably the early, well, depending on how uh, authentic you regard the sayings of Ali just recited, uh, it's probably one of the earliest works published in the library. Uh, one of the things that kind of influences my approach is I'm more or less a historian that works deeply within Arabic texts, and particularly because I work at an earlier time. Uh, I tend not to think in terms of verticality of a tradition as it goes over massive amounts of time, but because I'm working within the first few centuries when everything is still, uh, it's getting very uh, inchoate, not fully formed phases, I think horizontally. And I think one of the interesting things when we think about cultural uh, diplomacy is the horizontal relationship of Arabic to the surrounding cultures and literary traditions that it constantly engages with. And something that sometimes, uh, creates a little bit of anxiety. That is, understanding not Arabic as a language of exclusion of a tradition or a religion or a people that somehow is foreign and uninviting, but rather the real power of the Arabic language and the real reasons why it remains so potent and vital because it's this language of inclusion. It's a language that has this almost um, irresistible pool of many cultures, many themes, and many stories, and also has this kind of impact uh, across the cultures. And one of the reasons why I bring this up is because uh, my book happens to be about uh, a somewhat important figure, a monumental figure of world history, but also the founding figure of the religion of Islam itself. And it's, it's essentially a type of biography of Muhammad. It's a <coughs> recollection of a series of stories about the Prophet Muhammad's uh, uh, lifetime, and even other things besides, interestingly enough. Um, and one of the questions that I always ask as a translator, and even personally, is what purchase or what right do I have in engaging with Muhammad at this deep level? What kind of anxiety is this? I'm a non-believer, uh, uh, and does that create anxiety? Does that create a problematic? Or does that create kind of a, a important kind of moment of cultural exchange? The thing about me personally, I belong to a mixed religious family, right? I myself am an atheist, but I have two stepdaughters that are Muslim, right? So I approach text as, um, as someone that doesn't believe, but as someone that has a deep love for and admiration for the central character and the central personality, and so much as I have dedicated my life to it. 
But at the same time, I am very conscious of the work that, uh, that I do and its impact on my loved ones and importance perhaps for my loved ones. But also I think about that in a kind of a grander scale, right? But this mi microcosmic level of kind of my interpersonal relation, but also what are we doing as scholars in the way in which we kind of have our, our admiration and our respect and our dedication to a tradition that maybe we're not, we're not a part of, we're part of our, our own tradition, you know, but we can still interact with, uh, in very kind of, I guess, diplomatic ways and negotiate these kind of barriers. Uh, in any case, this inclusiveness, I think, is uh, a part of the promise and a part of the exciting aspects of, of the library of Arabic literature, is understanding uh, the Arabic literary tradition as radically inclusive, right? And, inc and including kind of a vast array. So in order to kind of to display this, I want to read in kind of brief a diplomatic mission of Muhammad's own that features, interestingly enough, not someone from Arabia, but rather the Roman emperor. And this is the Roman emperor Heraclius. Uh, Heraclius is famously the Roman emperor that loses Syria to the Islamic conquest. And he does that at a, at a very strange time. Heraclius, he's, he comes into power in the wake of a coup d'etat. This coup d'etat uh, inspires a Persian invasion from the west. They lose Syria, they lose Egypt. Uh, the Byzantium is in a crisis, and then Heraclius does his own counter-coup, and then he regains these territories, marches against Persia, and burns the heart out of the Persian Empire, and he takes the, uh, uh, the looted uh, relic of the Holy Cross back, restores it uh, to, uh, to the Roman Empire. He's exultant. He's at its most powerful. And, but then things are kind of getting ready to go out of his control. Anyway, this is where our narrative picks up with Heraclius. So Heraclius was a seer, this is a very interesting way of describing it, who would look into the stars. One morning he awoke, and the people of his court saw something amiss in his appearance. So they asked him, what troubles you? I looked into the stars last night, he said, and I saw that the king of the circumcised has appeared. Ah, don't let this trouble you, they said, for only the Jews are circumcised. Dispatch an order to your cities and have every Jew killed. <laughs> Heraclius went to one of his fellow seers, who also looked into the stars, and he wrote back to him with a like, of what Heraclius had told his court. Later, the ruler of Bosra in southern Syria sent him an Arab man to inform Heraclius about this prophet. Find out whether this guy is circumcised. His courtiers answers, they have looked, and lo, he is circumcised. Truly, they said, the king of the circumcised has appeared. And so then the, the narrative kind of segues. I'm going to kind of fast forward a bit into where Heraclius says, let's get one of these Arabs. We're going to interview him and see whether or not this prophet is true or not. And lo and behold, who does he interview and who did he get a hold of? But Muhammad's arch enemy from the Arabs, Abu Sufyan. This is like the, the main kind of enemy of, of Muhammad. And so he brings Abu Sufyan in and he interviews him. And his stipulation is that uh, Abu Sufyan's uh, kind of caravan has to stay behind him. And if Abu Sufyan lies about anything, they have to reveal to him. So Abu Sufyan is forced to tell the truth. But interesting, Heraclius is very clever. He asks them a series of questions that makes him tell the truth without doing it on purpose. It goes like this. Um, say to them, this is Heraclius speaking, I'm going to ask this one here about the man who claims he is a prophet. If he lies, then the others are to expose him as a liar. And then Abu Sufyan says, By God, if it were not for the risk of earning a reputation of a liar, then I would have lied. And Heraclius said to his translator, Ask him, how is uh, he esteemed among you? Well esteemed, I said. Was there a king among his ancestors? No. Did any of you accuse him of mendacity before he said this? No. And who follows him, he asked. The powerful or the powerless? Just the powerless, I said. 
Yes. Do their numbers decrease rather than increase? No, I said. They are increasing. Yes. Does anyone who has entered his religion apostatize from it or out of displeasure with him? No, I said. Have you fought against him? Yes. How did your battle, battles against him fare? The wars between us and them have been a stalemate, I said. A number of ours have fallen, a number of theirs have fallen. Does he commit any treachery? He asked. No. We're at an armistice with him. We don't know what he's planning to do right now. Abu Sufyan said, By God, miraculous did not permit me to say another word. Has anyone else made this claim before him? Yes. No, I said. And then he goes on and he says, Each of these questions I asked you about him, and each of these questions answering as you did confirmed to me that he's a prophet. And then he goes and he says, What does he command of you all? And then Abu Sufyan answers Heraclius the Emperor. He says, He commands us to pray, to pay alms, to act virtuously, and to honor the bonds of kingship. If, you, if what you say is true, Heraclius said, then he is a prophet. And I have indeed come to know that he has appeared. I do not suspect that he would be one of you Arabs. Had I known that I could reach him, then it, then it would have delighted me to encounter him. And had I found myself in his company, then I would have washed his feet. His dominion will stretch to the very earth beneath my feet. And then at that moment, Abu Sufyan said, then he called for the letter of the messenger of God, which had arrived to the court. And his contents were as follows. In the name of the merciful, the compassionate, from Muhammad the messenger of God, to Heraclius, the emperor of Rome, peace be upon you, and those who follow guidance. Now to the heart of the matter. I summon you with the summons of Islam. Submit and be saved. Submit, and God will reward you twice over. But if you turn away, you will fall prey to the sin of the wicked tenants. People of the book, this is now according to the Quran, come to common terms between us that we shall worship none but God and shall ascribe no partner to him, nor shall we take others besides God as lords. If they turn away, say, so bear witness that we are Muslims. There, in any case, there's a lot to this story, uh, but I think it's a very fascinating story how the life of Muhammad is told in terms of these tectonic shifts within history and empires and civilizations and how they are also seen intertwined. One of the most fascinating things I think about, about this, I can't stop this because of my historical interest, is that first story I read to you about being a seer, that story actually appears in the chronicle uh, uh, attributed to Fredegar. He's a Merovingian chronicler writing in the 660s and yet it appears also in this text. The text that I just, uh, the, the letter of Muhammad speaks about the Rome falling to the sin of the tenants. This is the tenants that are referred to in the Synoptic Gospels, the wicked tenants that rejecting God's messengers are eventually dispossessed of their land. We have the sense in which the Arabic text in its inclusivity and its kind of interest in portraying this prophet as kind of this, the monumental figure engaged with the tectonics of history interweaves itself with many cultures. And I think that's one of the more fascinating aspects of it. to uh, pick up on what Sean has said and on what uh, Muhammad Saleh said by reading you two extracts, one from the uh, expeditions and one from the uh, virtues. One of the ways in which the, uh, uh, the library is an act of cultural diplomacy is that it introduces texts, or rather motifs, and lots of our texts are made up of smaller texts, and um, those texts are essentially travelling motifs, 
it introduces them to each other, and we find them in contexts where we don't usually expect them. Um, so the story of Heraclius and Abu Sufyan is a very widespread one in Arabic. You find it in lots of different contexts. You find it in histories. You find it in collections of prophetic tradition or traditions about the prophet. And you find it in sagas of one sort or another, what I would call, you know, sagas, long narratives about the conquests, of which this is one. Um, and it has variants, which also show the, uh, the uh, receptivity of Arabic. So uh, a variant is when the Arabs, the Muslims, are uh, referred to as the laborers of the 11th hour, aren't they? So it's another uh, gospel reference. And one of the things that perhaps we ought to be doing in the Library of Arabic Literature, one of the things we ought to be putting online, is these, uh, an index of these travelling motifs. This is something that has never been done for Arabic, and yet uh, they are one of the most interesting features of Arabic, uh, in that they can pop up absolutely anywhere in any kind of text and be made something of by the person who is shaping that particular text. Um, and uh, I think we are only half reading as long as we don't have that capacity to draw together uh, um, the, the, the travels of these motifs. And this is one of the uh, things that comes of being a modern scholar rather than a pre-modern scholar. We are specialists in one particular branch, and a pre-modern scholar would have been a specialist in several branches, would have been a poet, a muhaddith, uh, somebody who did law, somebody who did all sorts of things, and could use these things as appropriate in different ways, in different contexts. So that these are really very much part of the subtext that we ought to be aware of if we are to emulate in any way the capacity of the original readers of the kind of things that we're translating. Um, so I'll just read you two examples. The first is abridged from Sean's translation of the Marazi, and it's about the construction of the temple of Jerusalem. Solomon declared to the demons, Verily, God has commanded me to build a mosque in Jerusalem, but I must not hear there the sound of a saw or the clang of a hammer. The demons replied, Truly, in the sea lives a demon. Perhaps he is able to accomplish this and will inform you how. Solomon showed the demon his signet ring. When he showed him the ring, for Solomon's power to rule resided in his ring, the demon requested a glass container, and it was crafted. The glass container was placed over the egg of the hoopoe. The hoopoe then came to nestle atop its egg, but couldn't. When the hoopoe left, the demon said, watch now, and see what the hoopoe brings, and then take it. The hoopoe returned, carrying a diamond, and placing it atop the glass container, split open the glass. The demons took the diamond and began carving stones until they had constructed the Jerusalem temple. Now one day Solomon set off for the bathhouse. When he entered the bathhouse, that demon entered with him. When the demon entered the bathhouse, he stole Solomon's ring and threw it into the sea. Then the demon cast a human form on Solomon's throne, his footstool, in the shape of Solomon, and Solomon's power to rule abandoned him. Solomon traversed the earth and took shelter with a woman and she placed before him a whale and, split, and she split open its belly. Solomon saw his signet, signet ring in the belly of the whale. He removed it from its belly and put it on again. 
From then on, all the creatures he encountered prostrated themselves in obedience to him, whether beast or fowl or any other creature, and God restored Solomon's power to rule. And now another extract, an aphoristic extract, from the Treasury of Virtues, which belongs to uh, the uh, late antique pool and is going to have a very long history of recirculation in different attributions for many centuries to come. So this is very plastic uh, material, and plastic particularly in terms of who it's attributed to and what sort of points it is thought to make. You would have thought that these lapidary statements could only mean one thing, but in fact it turns out that they can mean quite a lot of different things. Ali is dying, and he speaks to his son, Al-Hassan. My son, Ali said to him, remember four things and four more things, and I'm told that this enumerative approach is inherently Persian. As long as you act upon them, nothing will harm you. What are they, father? Al-Hassan asked. Ali replied, the best wealth is intelligence, the greatest poverty is foolishness, the loneliest alienation comes from conceit, and the noblest ancestry is good moral behaviour. Father, said Al-Hassan, that makes four. What are the other four? Dear son, Ali replied, beware of befriending a fool, for he wants to benefit you, but harms you instead. So this is Aesop's fables. Beware of befriending a liar, for he brings near to you the distance, and makes distant from, from you the near. Beware of befriending a miser, for he holds back from helping you when you most need him. And beware of befriending a depraved person, for he will sell you for a trifle. <laughs> well, it seems very appropriate that each speaker has to stand at this Makama of all souls. Um, I'm Robert Irwin. I'm a freelance writer living in London. Uh, the day has zipped by too swiftly for, my, for me to collect my thoughts, and here we are already in what one can think of as the graveyard shift of the conference. <laughs> um, I'll just start by commenting on the, the text that was just discussed and mentioned, um, this Treasury of Virtues. I think the author or authors, it's unfortunate, they, they, they passed their sell-by date for translation. Um, in the late 15th century, Earl Rivers was on his way to Compostelle when he was met a, a Gascon called, no, was it a, Bre a Breton called Louis de Bretagne, who introduced him to a collection of sayings by the, alleged sayings by the great philosophers of antiquity. Earl Rivers thinks this is absolutely marvellous and translates it from French into English and shows it to Caxton. Caxton thinks it's marvellous and they present it to Edward IV, the finished English version. And from that time onwards, you get in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries a considerable cult of this kind of wisdom literature, fables, pithy sayings, Polonius-like uh, advice, and indeed, of course, Shakespeare draws on it quite, quite frequently, not just for Polonius's speeches. Um, and it's the kind of thing that Addison finds very useful. Galland um, probably regarded his work translating this sort of, collecting and translating this sort of stuff as more important than his work on the Arabian Nights. And it, it, it probably it does feed into another somewhat defunct genre of literature, 
that of the sermon. Um, nobody rushes out these days to buy either ooh, the latest collection of wisdom literature or a new <laughs> volume of sermons. Um, they used to. And you know, it had a very close relationship with mainstream literature, but the time has passed. Um, so it's a question of readership. And I'm guessing I've been parachuted into this last session to speak as a lay reader. Uh, I'm a lay reader in several senses. I'm not an academic. Um, I'm not planning to teach these texts. Um, and I don't think I think like an academic, even if I once did. Not only that, uh, but thinking on the origins of lurb texts, these are the, the lurb editions of Greek and Latin translations, parallel texts, English and Greek, Greek in Latin or Greek on the other side. Uh, these these days are mostly used by, almost entirely used by academics and academics in classics departments. But this was not the original intention of the people who set up the Lerb texts, and they were really aiming at people who wanted to, in effect, teach themselves Latin or Greek. Um, and someone like Virginia Woolf, who was teaching herself Greek and read some of these texts, was the ideal um, target audience for this kind of publication. Well, that kind of audience does sort of exist for these Arabic texts. My wife has been studying Arabic for four years at various colleges, and she's become part of a mafia of people who are looking for people who can teach them more advanced Arabic. They've got through the elementary course. Um, but my God, that's a tiny constituency. I mean, she knows practically everybody in London is trying to do that. Um, and moreover, the kind of Arabic they're wanting to master is really 20th century Arabic, um, uh, or rather 21st century Arabic even, and uh, even Faris Ashidiak I think would not be terribly helpful as a text for them to study with. He offers rather a lot of vocabulary, much of it is wonderfully impressive, but um, <laughs> I, I love Dachtala. But, um, so now the question I have to ask is, can Lao reach out beyond academic audiences? And how is it going to do that? Uh, I have very few ideas here. One is that you should make links with certain festivals. The Bradford Muslim Literature, uh, Cultural Festival is one obvious one. Another obvious one is the Liverpool Arabic Arts Festival. Both these events are annual. I should think it should be easy, fairly easy to get a slot in one of these things. One might also consider a group launch for some of these books at the School of Oriental and African Studies then you need reviews. And here I come as the messenger bringing bad news. I have to explain why not everything in this series is going to get a review in the Times Literary Supplement. Still less, of course, in the LRB or the Economist or the Financial Times or whatever. Uh, books obviously fight for space. Uh, Peter Stoddard has a tremendous enthusiasm for the classics and Mary Beard a considerable expertise. But even there, you know, not very few of the Lerb texts get reviewed there. And it's only two weeks ago I was looking at two full bookcases, books on classical studies, which Mary Beard is not going to send out for review. They're just sitting there. Um, books within my Middle Eastern territory, I've got to do with books on ISIS. I've got to do with books on Mandel Glassware. I've got to do very contemporary novels. I've got to do books on Ottoman history. So there's fight for space within my territory. And then my territory has to be defended against the larger territories of English literature, ornithology, astronomy, you name it. Um, there is another, sometimes there's another occasional difficulty. Every now and again I come across a book, I think, yeah, that's really interesting, 
but I have no idea who could possibly write either an informed or an interesting review. Though it's sometimes useful to take uh, somebody from right outside the field and say, look at this, what do you make of it? And listening to the stuff about consuls and Cadis, I think, yes, I know someone who's written a lot about geisha culture. I think it might be fun to give yes. this person knows nothing about Arabic history, but yeah. this would, might be interesting. Um, another problem Lal has, in common with most translations from Arabic, uh, particularly non-fiction Arabic, is bookshops just don't know where to place these books. I even had that with the Arabian Nights and Guides to the Arabian Nights. Where do they get shelved? I've hardly seen Lal books on the shelves in bookstores. Foils is an honourable exception <laughs> in many ways these days. Um, I think now finally, or very nearly finally, I wonder how is this project going to work in future? In, in, if I were in an ideal world, I feel it ought to be driven by the board. They ought to say, this thing must be done. Here's a major thing that should be done. I, I really would like to see Ibn Arab Shah's Guide to King Shafaki had to kill far done. I'd like to see a proper edition. My God, if Khalil were done. Um, but I suspect what has been happening and what must continue to happen is that you will be driven by the enthusiasms of individual translators. That you are so it's a somewhat miscellaneous project. Somebody gets gets a thing for and it's in a way that's of course good that the enthusiasm is there, the knowledge is there, but it's a somewhat random selection, which is not centrally directed. <laughs> um, and final blast of enthusiasm. I'm delighted that the 101 Nights, the translation of the 101 Nights, is well advanced. I think this is the kind of text I personally would like to see a lot done. Um, and this fits in very well with what's going on in Paris. We've Abu Bakshrebi's Literature Median project. I'd love to see it a lot. We just, it's a bit tiresome to talk about popular literature, Arabic, pre modern popular liter Arabic literature, and all one can refer to is the Arabian Nights when one knows for sure there's so much more there, and so much more, incidentally, it was actually better known quite often than the Arabian Nights. Um, I think I've finished blasting off. I'll stop there. in very good time and we are actually left with how much time 45 minutes for discussion what? oh sorry i did forget to say one thing sorry uh, yeah, yeah. um uh, on reviewing uh, it does strike me that the parallel texts are a bit heavy but yes they shout academic as somebody said earlier in the day but i think there's a much better chance with paperbacks uh, much better chance of getting reviews if it's just the English and they've got bright coloured covers as well. <laughs> Racy covers. Yes. Okay, very, very good. Thank you for that. For that. Uh, it's been a fantastic day. So I'm sure you all feel stimulated, but I'm sure you also feel that you have lots of questions that you'd like to address, not only to the panelists sitting here, but also to other panelists you heard today, and especially the editors and members of the editorial board. So if you, um, I don't know how we're going to do this. Um, does anybody want to come forward? Can I just start with an observation? Yes. A very quick observation, which is the, the suggestion that the uh, that the uh, aphorisms 
of uh, of the treasury of be produced as a uh, as a standalone thing. Uh, we're already there. It's done. It's available as an ebook, free as I'm. It's free the chat. It is free. There are hundred. Um, yes, the hundred proverbs. So not not the not not, not, not the not the uh, treasury of produce, but the hundred proverbs is available as a free ebook um, uh, and Kindle edition. I'd like to do one of those little. Um, uh, I think it would go very nice. It's one of those little, very little um, uh, uh, stocking filler books. Yeah, those very nice tiny ones, ones, like sayings of Ruby and things. Yes. 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 Um, it's in a pocket size. Yes, yeah, yeah, it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll be 50 yeah. leaves. Yeah, yeah that's good. The Arabic, the translation, I think it would look great. It would be great, yeah. and it would be, be Arabic half fed, right? When you travel, you take it with you, and you just want to know your fortune. How, how is it going to turn out? <laughs> Open up that book of aphorisms in Arabic, but in English translation, and you will know. That sounds fantastic. Right. What, what about. Can I Phil? respond to Robert? Um, I want to stand up so that people might hear me, because I don't think if I'm facing that way, no one will hear me. They won't hear me anyway, but. <laughs> um, I see a lot of what you said was is 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 you know, hard realism, and we have to accept that. But I think we have to actually be very brave and uh, ambitious, and, and stock up on energy, and just try and and uh, keep beating our chests, so that <coughs> places like Blackwells do uh, figure out where to put these books. Mm -hmm. We put them together in in the in the window. Why? Why? Because no one knows about this corpus of literature, and everyone's ignorant about this corpus of literature. And it's a, it's a, it's a light, It's a librairie. It's a bookstore. It should be educating. Uh, and it's not because people haven't done that with, with such enterprises so far that uh, we should just be, accept that uh, we carry on with the status quo. I think we, I mean, but we haven't got. A magic wand to make it happen, but I think you know, with all the with all the advice that you give us, and and and, and just banging on people's doors, and also just the common sense of what cultural diplomacy is all about. It's, uh, it's filling in space that is is uncharted territory. This is vast uncharted territory. So I don't see how uh, how a library could justify not knowing where to put these books, but or the, or a bookstore. It's a, an idiotic thing to say. We just don't know where to put them. Well, find somewhere. <laughs> 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 you know, I guess I'm going to put them. Yeah. Well, anyway, I don't, I'm just saying. All right, Marina. Well, I, I do want to go first if someone else goes first. Terence. Yes. I just wanted to say, hearing the sort of TLS view of this, um, it seems very striking that the idea was that individual titles wouldn't bring um, mention or review in the TLS. Uh, they might be seen as too far out or boring, mm -hmm. but the enterprise as a whole no. surely, surely mm -hmm. does require commentary. So you could do something rather enterprising and commission a series of collective essays on these from different <coughs> angles, precisely as a mm -hmm. cultural diplomacy, because we need to know about this. Can I reply to that immediately? That yeah. uh, when only three or four volumes were out, I did exactly commission a commentary article along centre page yes. double spread on you know what what the, this library was going is and what it was going to do. And yes, I think in the future, give it. I can't have one every few yeah. months only. It, sometime in the fairly near future, I'll commission or perhaps do myself a big composite review. So let's hear something positive about that rather than what they don't get. 
Mm. I, th I mean, I think, one, I think one of the very important approaches is simply something that Julia uh, alluded to, which is the idea of the travelling motif, and that is that by reading these books, the range of reference is widened. So it's not so much necessary to have, obviously very desirable to have single reviews or review essays of several titles, but what is <coughs> perhaps more manageable is that these books circulate into the lingua franca of critical thinking. And therefore, the illusions come naturally in other essays and in naturally to conversation. I mean, in the same way as one might you know, laugh about something being Chaucerian, you know, one might think that it might be, <laughs> like, yes, yes, Barriac might become a kind of, as it were, a sort of figure known as a type. You know, mm. this. So I think that's, that's an important element. But I, I did want to make one general comment. If, if there isn't another question, I don't want to take time. Which is that I sense, and I don't know if Wen Chin would like to, because she and I have been judging the Man Booker International together, so we've been reading a huge amount of novels. And I sense that the, 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 the so-called definition of the novel has really shifted. And it's shifted in ways that reflect the kinds and modes of literature that we've been hearing about today. The essay, the anecdote, the, the sort of analecta kind of idea, the sort of aphoristic. I mean, someone like Sebat, you know, has, has broken out, has wrote what he called novels, but he broke out of the, into memoir, and you can't tell whether this narrating self is continuous with the writing self. You know, this kind of um, now rather, in, rather embedded uh, ways of using fiction to think um, and I want to bring <coughs> Terence in here on this point because it's Terence who has this very you know, marvellous um, programme about using literature to think with. And I think that fiction really has become, has become this more of a tool to think with. And this actually gives, on the lines of Kafka and his precursors, it, it casts this retrospective light onto the Arabic modes of narrating. They come back into focus because they are related now, they have affinity now with many of these new methods. The, I mean, we don't know if the methods have been influenced. I mean, it's possible they are, but even if they're not, they're more recognizable because of these changes in the fictional um, landscape. Terence, do you have, do you, uh, is there anything you'd like to say? Well, I don't want to start talking about my stuff at the moment. I have got something I want to say a bit later, perhaps. Okay. That's another question okay. coming in. Perhaps I uh, can keep you two minutes at the end. Two minutes at, at the end? Anything? Yeah. Uh, okay, otherwise I'll come. No, it's a question to the board, actually. Um, I, I don't know exactly about the um, financial arrangements for the for the whole enterprise, but uh, but the cultural diplomacy made so me... Yeah, I, d I don't know exactly about the, the financial arrangements for the uh, for the whole series and how much it's subsidized and how much is it is profit non-profit and things like that. But cultural diplomacy, but cultural diplomacy and this and the, uh, raised in my in my question, uh, this is a this is a, a clearly um, a project that touched a nerve at a particular time, and it went out and presented itself and won the uh, trust of at least two major places and a, and a university press. Uh, so I wonder how much thought has been given or whether <coughs> it should be given 
to extend that cultural diplomacy in terms of the funding process itself and as part of the circulation. For example, I could envisage a, uh, a formula by which um, uh, high schools or, um, uh, for example, uh, uh, at the level in the American setting, for example, to be actually given uh, at a subsidized level or even free certain copies like that. The universities are the same, some other cultural settings. That's, I'm just raising this because mm. you're, you're, you're ambitious, whether you're ambitious in that field too, and, and how much you can draw on other people who are willing to support this kind of goal in general, without, of course, making any editorial compromises yeah. in your choices and your boldness, because money can make you do that. Uh, that's just a question to the board. Who are so I don't know yeah, if it's I'm been not clear. Have we made it clear today that we are, you know, thinking in terms of phases <laughs> and uh, building up uh, capacity building as we move forward? Because we, we were the grant was renewed for another five years, which was at the end of this year now another five years plus two um, at least if we were had to wind down. Uh, but we are thinking in terms, so the next phase is another phase of time, but it's also another phase of, 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 of uh, expansion with a fellowship program. I mean, I, I we introduced Humphrey Davis as a senior fellow now. Of La, uh, you didn't mention that, did you mention it? No, 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 and we are launching a, a paperback series in the fall, in the, in the autumn, um, and hoping to do a, a big uh, NYUPL, that's the Public Library um, launch with Amitabh Ghosh, and the, um, with, with lovely covers. Direct answer to your question. We have not sat down and said, what are the high schools and cultural and other institutions that might be interested in, let's send them a full set. But I think without exception, I speak on the correction chip, Gemma, if any institution of any kind shows any interest, they receive a full set. You know, valeur du jour. So we have 16 now, that we get 16. Someone contacted us eight years ago, not eight years ago, eight months ago, they might have gotten 12. So for example, also, I believe we sent a complete set, or if it wasn't, I would have thought it was. That's one on the table. Uh, right, exactly. So the moment uh, Devin Stewart gave a lecture at the Institute for Ismaili Studies two days ago, the moment they invited him, he actually said, Devin said uh, to the board, how about doing this thing? And the first thing we did is send them a full set, right? So in that sense, we are reacting. And so what I was going to say was, if you can come up with a list of 10 places you think are valuable, and you give that to Phil Kennedy, tomorrow, those 10 places will receive full sets. But what we haven't done is sat down and said, what are those places? Because in part because it's not the way we've yet conceived of this. But for the other reason, and it's going to sound silly, the other is because we don't have time. I mean, in the sense that what we're trying to do is to work out what the books should be. The, the question of working out where those books should end up um, is something we'll have to consider. And it's, a, it's an excellent point. And uh, so some of the things that many of you have suggested have, or have been thought of. For example, the things that uh, Stuart just said about the aphorism. Right? <coughs> Sometimes someone has an, a bright idea and it's it you know, carried forward. Other things we think of, but then we think, oh, well, we don't have time. For example, I recently suggested to um, NYU Dubby that they send copies of ex uh, true travel books to the Russian, Chinese, and Indian embassies <coughs> because their countries are implicated, right? And then if 
they, for example, reached out to Phil and said, oh, this is really interesting, you know, we want 10 sets for our high schools, he would immediately do it, right? So it's really, we put the burden on the other side, and, and maybe it's time for us to, uh, to start thinking about it the other way. But if I could just add sort of a tiny little note of pragmatism. We are effectively a research project. Right? We're not this, I mean, we have lots of things as well because we're ambitious. But we are funded by a research institute with a specific goal to produce 75 books. Now, we built in an important outreach component to the research project, but we are a research project that produces books. And if we lose sight of that, we will not produce books, and we will not cease to be relevant. It's the books that are producing these consequences. And we're simply running a research project. Yeah. And we have day jobs. Yes. So there's only so much time to do all this stuff. Somebody like 
you know, Yusuf Rocha, who's written this uh, book, now just published in English, The Crocodiles, which is completely, you know, it's called a novel, but that's probably by the publishers for marketing purposes, but it is really a prose poem in numbered paragraphs. It's completely unlike any other novel that you've ever written. So there are so many exciting things going on in contemporary Arabic literature, which maybe there could be some hookup somehow with Lao. It would be good to have a discussion about, about that in terms of marketing Lao to the wider world. I'd just like to contribute, yeah, the when, uh, little, little anecdote, maybe uh, some of you will, will remember when, when uh, this research project was, uh, was given the money, the funds were. It was, of course, in competition with, uh, what was it, four projects in the science, and this was the only one in the humanities, and I think we very proudly referred to it as our own particle accelerator. <laughs> but that's partially, uh, but in terms of accelerating the particles, I think uh, uh, I want to really reconfirm what you just said, is to, to think about world distribution. Um, English is the Latin of, of our age. Uh, there is a whole access uh, to, to this literature, therefore, with people who have English, whether whether they're in China, whether they're in 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 German. I mean, if you look at the history of translation, the the, the way in which Latin translations of uh, of Greek Latin was the vehicular language of uh, so much important translation, you know, as was Arabic. Uh, um, so that that really opens up, it seems to me, uh, possibilities, maybe especially in the paperbacks and. And again, thinking, you know, uh, right at the beginning, still remember, kind of, we were in Abu Dhabi and dealing with Kalima, and you know, what what books should, what books uh, from around the world should go into into Arabic, and, and what were the complex complexities of the distribution networks within the Middle East and uh, and beyond, uh, and uh, I don't know because. You know, we've been talking about it. I mean, this, this series is, is also, one imagines, like a kind of uh, pleiad of cultural capital that, that a lawyer or engineer could display on their bookcases. And, and you know, uh, although uh, he or she was an Arabophone, uh, their, their command of uh, classical Arabic was not that good. And, and like the lobe, you would use the, the English to cheat back to the original, but, but the main thing was that it was a kind of a, a real insignia, um, as, as is the Fayad in France and throughout the world, or Library of America, uh, a kind of insignia of cultural capital. And I just, uh, I really think that the, uh, uh, you know, the, the potential when you think about sort of distribution uh, not just through universities, but you know, in Germany, in in China, in Indonesia, in all the various places where English is the you know. Okay, the, great, Richard. Thanks. Okay. Right, thanks for your comments. And then at the end of the work, yes. Yeah, my name is Mohammed, and uh, thank you very much for organizing this event, and thank you for the project of the library and the literature of Arabic language. And 
Egyptian and study Arabic language and Arabic literature, I'd like to ask you directly why there's no academic or uh, translators involved in the project from that region, from those own natives, from Baghdad, from Egypt, from Syria, from Palestine. So I think that would enrich the project itself in terms of consultation with all respect to the, the level of language that all of you surprised me with. But I think first hand or first experience language would be a great enrichment to the, uh, to the project. So if you have an answer, please. Thank you. Thank you. I've been nominated. <laughs> Does have a website? So um, there's a there's a polite answer and there's a brutal answer. The brutal answer is because it's a fundamentally an English language project based in an English language university, Moyogabi, an English language press with an English language readership. Native command has to come on the right hand side of the page person translating into the target, target language is English. The translators have to have a native command of English. To the extent that one of our editors, who unfortunately can't be here, couldn't be here, Tahara Kutubdin, to the extent that when she was invited by Phil onto the board, she said, but I didn't grow up speaking English. She grew up speaking Arabic. She was raised in Qatar. And we said, your English is pretty good. Uh, she has a First degree from Ayn Shams, but her PhD is from Harvard, and she teaches at the University of Chicago. And she's married to an American, um, so uh, and you know she speaks English at home. So we said, no, no, it's good enough. She was the translator of the aphorisms of Ali, and I was her project editor. And when, which means that she sent me everything to look at, and every time she sent it to me, she would say, I need you to make sure that this doesn't sound like a non-native English translation. So that's the answer. The answer is that when we find someone, or when someone is brought to us, who feels comfortable, in, as comfortable in English as in Arabic, then that person is potentially going to be a translator. Now, if your question is why, so I was answering why there aren't any editors, right? Translators, we are looking for everywhere, right? But they too need to have a native command, right? Because we supervise the translation, right? So it's not just someone translating the work and working with us, but, but the editors have to supervise the translations. So we faced this question immediately. We immediately, we immediately noticed about ourselves that we were a bunch of white Western trained people. Okay? I'm not really white, but you can even know that. <laughs> what we thought, we thought to ourselves, how do we remedy this without it seeming like it's just a lip service? So we thought, well, we do need advice, right? We always do. So our international advisory board would be the way to do that. And if you look at our international advisory board, it is diverse. There are many people from the region. Uh, there could perhaps be more, uh, but we've, we've gone out of the way to represent, have people from, from around the Arab world or the Arabophone world represented. Some of the Arab people are not based in the Arabophone world. That uh, is complicated. So we might have someone who's Arab who's teaching in the US or UK or wherever. Uh, so that's how we've addressed it. But I think the basic answer is native command of English has had to be non-negotiable. I may not be a satisfactory answer, but it's the answer, though. It's the truth. Okay, Nadia, you had a question? I, that I just have a little, little comment. I mean, for me, I have to say that, that, that uh, I think in the third panel, Matthew Rowe, who brought up, 
you actually showed a very good window that if you want to popularize it, I can just see beautiful little YouTube shorts engaging because you get the reading, you get the, the comparative mm. engagement, and you actually get the book open for you because it doesn't matter how many reviews you make, you never open the book to let them see and see and somehow see that there's some relevance there that they, they want to go. And I honestly think that you know some beautiful YouTube shorts of, of, mm -hmm. of exactly what we, we saw <laughs> you do. If you want to do that kind of thing, that's the way you're going to get out. So of YouTube it. guys, yeah. <laughs> YouTube guys. I really think. Yeah. Could you do one? Could you do one? Matthew, you had something you wanted. Well, I was just wondering about this emphasis on the on native on native speaker command of something called English. Um, you know, I can see the rationale for that. But I'm just wondering about, about tensions around that, given that this is a project setting language side by side. One of the things I'm, I'm really interested in um, that I was going to say before you, before you said that is that I think your, your editorial practice is really interesting, the mixture of translation and editing together, the kinds of comments that you, Julia, for instance, were making about editorial uh, clarity that emerged out of a process of translation and so on, the use of, uh, for instance, an Arabic speaker using the English translation to kind of leverage a new sense of what's going on in the source text. That's something I, I mainly work on English, but I'm interested in looking at translations of English text into foreign languages in order to help me see what's going on in the, in the source text. So, the, so there's all this kind of opening up of textuality across languages, which is which is key in the project. And I think it's really interesting methodologically. I mean, I think that's, I, I like the stuff on your website that makes the method clear and so on. So I, I think that's a, that's a sort of, um, a, a kind of uh, a way of thinking about textuality and translation which has relevance beyond simply these, these beyond these Arabic texts and can, one can imagine being transported to other contexts. So I was thinking about that. But then this, this emphasis on, on native speaker command of something called English, and I, you know, I see the rationale for it, but it's somewhat in tension with that, isn't it? And it's somewhat in tension with the global, envisaged kind of global circulation of these texts. Because there isn't, you know, one language called English now. There are varieties of English, and there are varieties of native, native speaker competence in different varieties of English around the world. And one would have thought that, you know, I can see all the all the pragmatic and institutional reasons, and perhaps there'd be an argument that said standard American English is some kind of equivalent to classical Arabic. I don't know anything about classical Arabic, but I mean, but that or the, the point that was made earlier about varieties of Arabic texts and how you'd render that into varieties of different English. And I just wonder about, you know, obviously problematic, but looking to the future and how the landscape of languages is going to change, whether you can envisage, you know, translations into a variety of Indian English or, a, you know, these, these other Englishes. Because, I mean, it's a paradox about translation that it moves across languages, but it takes for granted that you're going into something called a language. Whereas it seems to me that one of the sort of energies in your project is you know, opening up languages. Um, and perhaps the, the thing that you're translating into can be conceived as a bit more multiple too. I wondered can about- Can you think of an analogous situation, another project? Uh, no, no, not really. But it's because it's but it's it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of new. Really. I mean, the assumption that the assumption that what somebody like me wants is a translation of an Arabic text into my standard English. Whereas I think it's I've difficult been, yeah. to find the kind of English that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I have got a translation into Scots English of Asterisk. Yeah. Asterix, and it's brilliant. Yeah. But but that implies a command of Scots English, yeah. um, which is. 
another kind of English rather than somebody who doesn't have a native command of some kind of English. Sure. So, so that's. Can, can I just respond to a, a part of this concern? In one of our events in Abu Dhabi, um, somebody stood up and, and remarked on the fact that we had made a deliberate decision to render all technical terms, even though the scholarly practice in our field often is to leave them in Arabic in the sense that they're sort of untranslatable. And I, I, think, I feel like this is actually, a, a, and this doesn't address the entirety of your point, uh, which is quite interesting. But I think we feel that's important because if you don't render the technical terms, then in some sense you haven't really translated the text. So if you leave bits uh, that don't occupy some space in English where they would be appropriate in an English equivalent, now sometimes what is an English equivalent is a complex question too, but if you don't do that, then in what sense is it a translation? Sure. Yes, I want to comment on Shoka. Uh, is the command of the language. You can be a native speaker of a language, but you don't have a command of it, okay? So that's what matters. But I will go further, especially for poetry, okay? It seems to me that the collaboration with a poet in the target language may be useful, will add certain things. Maybe, you know, you will have the name, for example, Merwin in the United States has helped Salma J. In certain translations, you know, but it's always a negotiable thing. You can't just get a poet to, you know, rewrite something, you know. But I think that will also add particularly to the poetry. I think. Uh -huh. Okay, Mark. Actually, my, my comment follows on from that. It's similar, and it seems to me that one of the things that was also being said here was that there's an attempt to render things into a literary English, into an English that was that that could be read as literature, even when we're uh, and so there's quite a lot of discussion about the problem of not being oneself a poet, but translating poetry. And that, that for me, I find it really fascinating listening all day, and, and, and I so enjoyed, I mean, how can I put it being made to read these texts <laughs> and then incorporating them into my, into my thinking? But it does, this sense of things looking in different directions, if you were thinking outside of the Arabic sphere and thinking about where are we in terms of literary study, it was a wonderful moment when Dominique said, you know, this is literature from um, Mars, I was going to say, well, actually, I think for most students, all literature is from Mars. Everything in Australia, the student travels, and they don't sit there and say, wow, I know that world. <laughs> so that sense of, um, so there's a, but that for me means that there's both a project here, which is about sort of philology, language, translation, transmission, which looks at editing, which is looking one way, and then there's a kind of project which is where I hear my conversations with Marina happening often, which is about kind of world literature, what is story, how does it circulate, what is literary language, how does it, how does it differ from everyday language, um, which are those kinds of questions, which I wouldn't expect, the, 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 which this workshop has been going through. I, I, I'm not sure that one would expect an editorial project to, to press in that direction, but that's, those questions are there too. And I'm, I'm still not quite sure how you make those two pages talk to each other because they feel like such different projects. I think that's what Matthew Spark's saying, you know, when you pick up these books, you know, we as literary scholars, but one of the reasons that probably Matthew and I both sort of felt slightly uncomfortable is because they are presented as as language projects in a land, and in a cult, language and culture that we don't feel, we don't swim easily in. So, yeah, it's a comment, not a question, but it's that sense. Great, thanks for that. And then, how about you? Comment or question? Yeah, I just, um, I'm sure this has already been entertained, but I thought I'd put it out there. 
Um, so, some of the texts that I have seen published are, of course, multi-volume. And, and that, it, in and of itself, is helpful. You know, teaching first years um, this time round, when they were introduced to the fact that we're dealing here most often with multi-volume compilations, they do find that quite interesting. And in some ways, it's unique to uh, classical Arabic literature. But I wonder whether there's a way to um, a sort of meeting point between uh, Robert Irwin's point about developing a more diverse readership, and then also not reducing the academic integrity of the project by simply selecting brief texts. Um, of course, you have wonderful brief uh, texts written. Khatib al-Baghdadi wrote plenty. Jahiz, the Book of Misers, um, is another. Um, so I wonder whether that's a sort of bridge between the problem of diverse um, authorship. But again, you don't want to, I, I do think it's important that the, the concept of multi-volume publications being so germane to classical literature is important. Secondly, um, it is the library of Arabic literature, but is it limited to works that were produced by uh, Arab authors? Of course, um, um, again, I don't know the entire register of the books that have been published, but of course, in the Indian subcontinent, in the late Peninsula, people are, of course, writing books in Arabic in the early modern period. Okay. I don't know what I did when I was young, but I'm being punished. <laughs> uh, it just happened to be relevant to everything. See it as a compliment. Uh, Azad Ali Azad Bilgrami is an Indian author who was born in Bilgram and migrated to uh, the Deccan. He lived and died in Aurangabad in 1792. He wrote um, a number of works. The most famous is called Sukhut al Marjan, Fiyatar uh, Hindustan, which has just been re edited actually, uh, on, um, well, briefly, on poets. But uh, he also wrote a work with Shifa al Alil, which is a super commentary on Al Wahidi's commentary and, and Ibn Jinni's commentary on 180 lines of Mutanabdi's poetry. Uh, and I'll be, I am editing and translating that text. So that is an Indian author um, with either real or imagined. Origins in Wasit. Um, I personally don't imagine, but I'm happy to concede that uh, that, he, that, he, that he was Arab. Uh, but he's certainly an Indian author in any sense of the term. So yes, that there you go. That's the answer. That we're not looking for Arab authors. We're looking for Arabic texts. Um, we've considered some uh, texts by uh, Christian and Jewish authors. Um, we've tried a collaboration with poets. It failed. Miserably, um, it felt it might have felt because of the individuals involved, but but when we tried it, it felt uh, it was not. I mean, someone was doing it, and we got to come up with a poet that they chose. Um, so these are all great. I mean, thank you because this is uh, there's only so much we can say, even in the course of an entire day, uh, about all the things we've tried to do, and some things have worked and failed. Some things, you know, the other thing I'm sure you know this is there are aspirational texts and aspirational things like say an Indian author, right? Um, it just so happens that I'm working on. We could, we could easily have not found it. Um, a West African author, for example. Uh, that's all out there. We're, we're absolutely um, not trying in any way, and this goes back to the name, right, to be uh, canonical or typical. <coughs> or, uh, yeah, the idea is to look what's, see what's out there and, and then also perhaps obvious, but match it with competences, right? It's not just native, native fluency in English. Uh, someone might be interested in doing a text, but they actually don't have a command of the Arabic. They may be Arabists, but it might be a text outside of their discipline, outside of their terminological comfort zone, and so on. So it's a it's a work in progress, and, mm. and um, I know it's not completely over yet, but 
Uh, I know we're all extremely grateful for all this feedback because it's all going to be discussed in a meeting in Edge One in New York in three weeks' time. So. Questions? More? Okay. Please. I just have one point. Um, today is the first time that I've seen the consoles book. And the first thing, very, very briefly, that the performance of the introduction was really interesting uh, way to start. But I wondered, it made me think whether the, another way of engaging some of this material might be outside of frameworks like academic literature. And I recently read a paper produced by the Centre of Dialogue about young women and their tweets and their poetry that's been read in relation to artists. I don't want to be sensationalist, but I'm very interested in the idea of young women um, who are writing poetry and self-publishing online in blogs and situations like that. And actually whether there's um, an interesting dialogue between what this book is bringing to the fore and this, you know, it's about thinking of the past to the present that makes the past relevant. And I just wondered if perhaps there are dialogues these books could open up that would make them possible for audiences outside of the academic world that could really um, introduce young readers, not necessarily 14 year olds, but like a whole new way of engaging this in, within a different framework of using language. Sure, I, I, I might have respond to that. That's um, Concerts, Chaos's. Uh, hot off the press, it feels warm, that's because it just came from printers. Um, so this is very new. I mean, this is something which certainly, uh, again, that would have to almost come from someone outside who sort of you know, picks this up and sees connections between poetry in the book and the poetry that young women are writing now. Um, it's, uh, we are often gratified when these kind of connections come to us. And as much as it seems fortuitous, it kind of, it's not something we can really plan for. Uh, when um, the first two volumes of uh, Humphrey's brilliant translation of Lego Lead came out, uh, it was embraced by sort of a um, certain American group of um, bloggers and writers who were interested in literature, contemporary literature and translation, who came across this book, found it, and we started to get reviews coming in, interest in sort of running excerpts, um, simply because they, were, they found this a revelation. This is something that was completely outside there. They couldn't believe this is something they've never heard of before. Um, and, and so it's very gratifying that sort of happens. So um, yes, uh, if you want to write something about it, please do. Yeah. Um, Marina, do you want to conclude? Yes, we just, yes. Okay, well, the heavens wants to yes. two minutes. Yeah, Terrence, or? I want to say a couple of words. Yes, yes. Um, well, this is partly really a kind of homage to uh, Philip and Marina, Marina and Philip, and to all their colleagues for investing such a huge amount of energy into this project and transferring the energy to us in the audience as part of a, a wider public, which will surely inevitably, in the end, um, absorb and make use of and make as yet undreamed of uses of this corpus. Um, it seems to me we have no idea yet what world literature might be, but this will be part of it, and we need this before we can get into the wider horizon of world literature. So it is really just to thank you. I should have said who I am, I'm Terence Cave. I'm, at, um, I'm an emeritus fellow of St. John's, and I, I will only say one word about the project since you mentioned it, which is a, it's called Literature as an Object of Knowledge, which sounds horribly ambitious, and indeed is horribly ambitious. Um, but its unofficial title is Thinking with Literature, or Literature as a, a Mode or Instrument of Thought. And that led me to pick out one um, luminous thread in today's activities, um, or 
discussions, which was which began for me. I'm not sure if it began, but this is in my memory, which is a bit defective. Uh, with the, um, I think it was it you who cited um, sitting on. You mentioned you described sitting on Philip's terrace in his house in um, on Corsica, discussing with other translators and editors. What were you doing? You were sitting around talking about words and their meanings, uh, cross cultures, um, about whole works and their meanings, and the utility, no doubt, of doing that. And that's exactly what we've heard over and over again in these works people are doing. Now, um, I don't really know whether that's because we've got a bit of a hang-up on discussing culture, so we pick out the moments in other texts where people do that, but I suspect not. It seems to me that's what Boccaccio's um, uh, storytellers were doing, Chaucer's storytellers were doing it. it. There are lots of other examples in European literature of people sitting around and talking about the, the ways in which the stories they tell become a part of our lives, part of our value systems and so on. And one of the things I'd like to do if my project were extended, I'm, a, I'm an old European, I was brought up on the old European languages, and I can't do Arabic, but I'm a closet Martian. <laughs> <laughs> what I'd like somebody to do, I can't tell them to do it, is to extend this project into precisely this element of um, the Arabic literature and literatures we've been hearing about, um, to see, to, to think about the ways in which, um, for all their strangeness, the the, the the ways that they do it, the the inhabitants of those texts are actually doing something we all do, which has always been done with literature, which is to talk about the language which it makes salient. Because one of the things language does, sorry, literature does, is make salient our uses of language, and beyond that, it makes visible to us the things that we need literature to do for us. And um, I would hope that this collection would help us to do that. I hope I haven't missed it.